Well, I hope you'll take your Bibles and turn to Psalm uh, 89. Psalm 89 is uh, where we find ourselves this morning, and it occurred to me, and I probably need to say something to you about this, that uh, every summer our church kind of pauses and we uh, read the book uh, of Psalms. We started in Psalm 1. This is our 89th Sunday over the years in the Psalms. And it occurred to me that I've never really told you why we do that. So here you go. I'm going to just kind of show you all my cards here. Uh, why, why do we stop in the summers and do Psalms? We, we stop. Okay, I have to be honest. We stop because I know people take vacations and people go places in their holidays like the 4th of July weekend. And so we want people to be able to come and go and not have to catch them all up about what, what happened last week. I don't know. And fill them in. We don't need to do that. So um, that's like the shallow reason, right? Uh, um, because that's the shallow reason, other pastors have uh, agreed with that. And now we, there's seven or eight different churches that are all going through the same psalm uh, in our area. We're all um, talking about it during the week and then preaching it on Sundays, which is an added blessing to have some friends and partners that are doing this with us. But uh, there really are better reasons than that. I just, you just have to know. We have been in uh, the New Testament, and one of the things that we hope uh, is that you will experience the entire Bible at New Life Church. So we want you to have some New Testament, some Old Testament, and get the mix there. The Psalms also are of historic significance in that this book in the middle of your Bible has been the hymnal of the church for its entire existence. In other words, the language of worship and the way that the church expresses itself to God comes from the Psalms, and so we want you to have the language that you need in order to praise and to pray and to worship the Lord. And then there's yet another reason that is probably true of many, if not all, the Psalms, and that is that the Psalms convey a skill in living, an ability in living that you don't get other places. In other words, we need the Psalms to help us uh, see the world as it is and to live under God's rule in a world that doesn't live under God's rule. We need the Psalms to show us essentially the way to stay on the path. We need the Psalms to steel our souls against hard times, against the things that would knock us off course. We need something that's going to hold us fast, and the Psalms do that. You may uh, see as we go on this morning, even in Psalm 89, that one of the things that the Psalms are supposed to do, and this one will do, is it will keep you from having mere cliche Christianity. 
I think it is so easy to have a quick answer in a, in a hopeful comment and to be hashtag blessed in a world that doesn't feel very blessed. And so the Psalms will help us hang tight when we would otherwise loosen our grip on our faith. So I hope that you're looking at Psalm 89 because Psalm 89 does just that. It, it uh, encourages us to hang on because God is faithful. And Psalm 89 does this in particular when there is a clash between God's Word on the one hand and our experience on the other. Because the events of life will often tell us one message when God's Word tells us another. And then what do you do? When circumstances call God's covenant love and faithfulness into question, how do you still believe? Well, that's what Psalm 89 is about, and so uh, I hope that you'll look at it with me. Uh, look at verse 1. It says, it suggests to us that God is good and faithful, and He will secure His promises. It starts this way, a masculine of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne to all generations, Selah. So with that introduction, that sets the scene for what is about to come. In the, the title or the superscription talks about Ethan the Ezraite. You might say, Ethan the Ezraite, that's like the weirdest name ever. What do we know about him? He's mentioned one other time in the Bible, in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 31, and he's mentioned as, a, as kind of a side note, because 1 Kings 4, 31 is about Solomon, who was the wisest person to ever live, and we're being introduced to Solomon in 1 Kings 4, and we're being told that Solomon is so wise. Well, how wise is he? He's so wise, he's even wiser than Ethan the Ezraite. And otherwise, Ethan the Ezraite was the standard for smartest in the history of the world. But now there's Solomon. In other words, this psalm comes from the silver medalist in the wisest person ever contest. It comes from number two, uh, the person who lives according to God's wisdom more than anyone else. Which is important because what he writes for us is called a masculine. Okay? Masculine is the term that describes a wisdom song or a tune that carries with it God's wisdom. And so that's what this psalm is. So you're, you're to take it not as like a personal meditation about how wonderful 
you know, your life is or how, how sweet it is to trust in Jesus, you're to read this and say, what do I need to know about how to live my life? And so verse 1 then orients you to what this psalm is about. It gives us the two most important words here. Steadfast love and faithfulness. And I say steadfast love like that's one word. In Hebrew it is one word. We don't have an English word that will translate straight across, so they have to put two words together because it's more than just love, love. Love like you um, see in the movies. Or love that says... Oh, I feel so great when I'm around you. I want to do nice things for you. It's not that kind of love at all. Steadfast love instead is love that is based in a promise. It is a covenant love. It's not fickle and somehow based on feelings. It's rather, it's rather anchored in a promise. It's the kind of love that you hope you see at a wedding. That isn't just some sort of uh, much, but rather is a firm uh, commitment or promise that people are making. That's steadfast love. The second word then is faithfulness. Faithfulness is God's resolve to keep his promises. It suggests a conscientious way of acting which reflects inner stability and consistency. There is an inseparable link between God's faithfulness and His promises. So if steadfast love is what you hope you see at a wedding, faithfulness is what you hope you see every day thereafter. And you find that then in the character of God. Okay, we see that in, uh, all over in this psalm. It's in verse 1. It's again there in verse 2, it's what the psalm is about. Then in verse 3, we see why these uh, words are so important. Because the writer alerts us to the covenant that God made with David. So God made a promise to King David, well, uh, made a promise to King David that he would keep his family on the throne forever. And it's written down for us in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. God is talking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the promise that God made to David, the one that's referred to in verse 3 here, is a promise to establish the throne forever. The dynasty will last forever. And so, of course then, the issues at stake are God's steadfast love and faithfulness, the things that have to do with God keeping His promise. Then verse 4 really focuses us on the problem when it says the word forever. It is through steadfast love and faithfulness that God will keep His covenant, but He will keep it forever. 
Now, that's wonderful. We get this sort of expose of the character of God here that tells us that God is good for His promises. But that, that isn't the only thing. God is good for His promises. And he, you, know, you might say, well, He means well. I don't know if you've ever thought, like, well, if God, you know, God, God talks a good talk, He means well, but He really can't make it happen. The rest of uh, this first half suggests that, yes, in fact, God can make it happen. And there is going to be nothing that stops God from His steadfast love and faithfulness, from keeping that promise. He will keep that promise really regardless. So if you look at um, the next section, really, verses 5 through 8, point out that God is above and beyond any other God or spiritual being. There is no spiritual opposition to God. God and Satan are not yin and yang. They're not the same. God is above all gods. All of the sons of God, all of the spirits, all of uh, created spiritual creatures are underneath God. Talks about the Holy One. Those holy ones are probably spiritual beings. We might sometimes call them angels or demons, I suppose. Those holy ones are underneath God's rule. They pose no threat to Him keeping His promise. Then it goes on from 9 to 14 to talk not about the spiritual opposition, but about physical opposition. Is there anything else that might be strong enough to stop God? And so there he reflects on uh, a number of things that are unusual for us. He reflects on the sea. And And he says the sea is no problem. You reign over the sea. And when you read in the Psalms anything about the sea, S-E-A, you should read that as shorthand really for chaos or trouble or danger. Because that's, that's the way that they viewed it. We, we think of the sea and we think of the, the sunsets over the Pacific, right? We think of the beach and the nice warm sunshine. That is not the picture they're talking about at all. In other words, the, the sea is a threat, but it's no threat to God. And then it goes on right after to talk about Rahab. And you may recall in chapter 87, uh, Psalm 87, There was a list of nations, and Rahab was one of them, probably there referred to Egypt. Here, there is no list of nations. Rahab most likely refers to some terrifying sea monster or some even mythical creature that wreaks havoc with sailors, and nobody wants to go in the sea because of the danger. And Rahab is crushed. There is no opposition to God. None of this is out of God's control. He talks in this section about the sea and the rivers as the chaotic enemies of the order maintained by Yahweh and His chosen one. But they also, the, the sea on the west and the river on the, the east uh, indicate the edges too of the boundary of this kingdom. In other words, God rules over the edges. It's as safe as it can be. 
talks about Mount Tabor and Mount Hermon. Two mountains that are associated with worship of foreign gods. Those gods are no threat to God keeping His promises. There is nothing physical or spiritual that can oppose or stop God from accomplishing His purposes. Then verse 14 catches us up again and reminds us of our theme here when it says that God's steadfast love and faithfulness are the foundations of your throne. Or righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. In other words, now he adds to it. The steadfast love and faithfulness, those are the things, but righteousness and justice belong to you too. There is nothing that is going to oppose God's rule in this world and God keeping His promise. And then there's a long section from 15 to 37, really, that highlights the security of David's throne. But it tells us that the throne of David is secure because there's the throne behind the throne. There's a throne underneath the throne that makes it secure. There's a foundation that cannot be shaken. Look at verse 15. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout. Then I want you to see the shift. It's not really talking about David anymore. This festal shout, this celebration is not for the King David. It's for the king that we don't see, right? Festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Our, the promise is good, but the King Himself belonged to the one behind the promise. The throne belongs to the throne behind the throne. And he goes on then to say, as long as the sun and the moon stand, the one who keeps the sun and the moon in the sky will keep steadfast love and faithfulness to David. Look at verse 33. I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. Okay, you, you, you do see that God's making a pretty big commitment here, right? His offspring shall endure forever. That was a promise in 2 Samuel. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies, Selah. God could not make a stronger statement of His ability and intent to keep His promise to David. It is His character that ratifies it. It is His power and control that ensure it. It is His rule over all things that protects this covenant. And hopefully, you now are sufficiently set up for the problem. And I think it's, I think it's worth noting 
that the first half is great news. The first half is what I hope you get like kind of every Sunday. Like reminder, God is steadfast love and His faithfulness are yours. You can count on God's steadfast love and faithfulness every week. I hope you get something, some version of that. Yet, what do you do if it doesn't work? What do you do if it doesn't seem to be panning out? Look at the next verse. <clears throat> he says, You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. Seven of these next eight verses accuse God of failing saying outright, when, when God Himself, just a few verses earlier, right, says, I will never let my promise go. He, now that the second smartest guy in the world says, you've renounced it, God. You've made a promise, and it does not look like you are keeping your promise. Now, what is that to say? Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever felt that way? Like whatever it is that God is talking about, whatever is happening, doesn't seem to be adding up with what you're told in church, with what you read elsewhere in your Bible? I mean, that's where the crisis of faith comes in. That's where the rubber really does meet the road. I mean, think about it. The rubber doesn't meet the road. I mean, it's not a big deal to have a nice, easy, happy life and say, hey, God, everything's good. Thank you. In fact, that's kind of what we're all hoping will happen, isn't it? But unfortunately, that isn't. That isn't what happens because most of the time, in fact, a lot of the time, our circumstances eclipse God's covenant. The promise that God makes to us just doesn't seem to be working. Which brings us then to this final uh, climax uh, of the psalm in verses 46 through 52. Now, I say it's kind of the finale, right? And you're thinking, oh good, it's going gonna, it's gonna to all get better. It's going to resolve and it's all going to be great. At the end, you might note that it doesn't happen. Verse 46, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you've created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. I hope that you recognize this language. I hope you're familiar with this refrain. I hope you use them in your own prayers. How long? How long, O oh Lord? God's people throughout history have prayed that prayer. How long, O oh Lord? 
And then the refrain, remember. You see, how long will you hide yourself? I mean, maybe, maybe you've not done this long enough to feel like God sometimes hides himself from you. But I have to say that time does not permit me to recount the times that I have had to say, how long have you forgotten what's wrong with this picture? Yet, while God hides himself, he tells us that he will be found. And to appeal to him to say, remember, is not a plea to some geriatric, forgetful old man in the sky. Rather, it's a plea to God for God to come through like you know He can, like you need Him to, and like He has told you that He would. Remember. Verse 49. Lord, where is Your steadfast love of old, which by Your faithfulness You swore to David? He comes right down to the very point of it, doesn't He? Where is this steadfast love? I heard about it in the first part. I hear about it at church all the time. What is going on? Where is it? What about that faithfulness we sang about a few moments ago? Now, I don't know. Maybe you expect the very next verse to say, Oh, yeah, no problem. It's all good. That's not what's next. This final refrain draws us back where we're going to have to decide with Ethan, aren't we? Are you going to give up? Are you going to cash it in and say, it doesn't work? Or are you going to say, you know what? I'm going to ask him to remember again. I'm going to bring it up again. I'm going to talk to him again. I'm going to hang on with white knuckles for all I'm worth again. And you're going to have to decide which one of those you're going to do. Verse 50, again, remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mocked. O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. And so... A lot of times we'll have a different problem than him. You see, a lot of times our problem with God isn't really a problem with God, but a problem with a God that we invent. A problem with a God that we make up in our heads. That thinks this, that the God that we make up in our heads should make us happy. He should make our life easy. He should make us rich. He should make us comfortable. He should make everything work out right. That is a made-up God. Okay? Sometimes we think that all of these things are just for us. But this promise to David is a, is a promise to the nation. It's a promise to history, really. It's a bigger promise than just me. And so, in some regard, the pain is bigger, too, than just my own problem. Look at this, verse 50. He says, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of many nations. 
Some of, some of the pain of this is the fact that God's reputation among the nations is being uh, destroyed or mocked. And we see that all the time, and I hope you feel pain when it happens. When, you know, pastors of large ministries somehow fall. Or the, the church is identified with some scandal or some um, position they shouldn't be identified with. And uh, shame comes on the name of Christ because of the church. That's the kind of thing he's talking about. And it's, this should not be going this way. And for your sake, I'm, I'm, I'm holding it in my heart that people are making fun of you because of the way things are playing out. And then, verse 52, and you're just going to say, here it is, finally. Blessed be the Lord. Amen and amen. The end. How does that help? Well, the reality is that verse, verse 52, is probably an appendix. It was probably attached onto the psalm even by the editors, possibly, because it's the very same ending that you have in book one and book two. And you'll notice that the very word after amen is not Psalm 90 in your Bible. If you look down there, it says book three, because the psalms are organized in five different books. And the first one and the second one and now the third one end with amen and amen. In other words, it doesn't resolve the psalm. But it is in our Bibles and it does encourage us that we really do need to hang on even with white knuckles, right? It expresses faith in the covenant love and faithfulness of God even when life is hard. But it doesn't make the disappointment go away and it doesn't make the disappointment easier to take. It doesn't make the reputation of God look all great. It's just a disappointment. And then, bless the Lord, amen and amen. So now what? Well, I want to suggest to you, you get to all the way to the end and you're hoping for the happy ending and you don't really see it. And then what? I think the lack of the resolution in this psalm points us actually, actually to the resolution itself. We ask the question with the psalmist, how long will you remember? And we don't know the answer to how long and will you remember. The psalm insists on God's covenant love and faithfulness. It makes us expect, like the author, that in spite of how awful things look, God will somehow come through. And somehow, blessed be the Lord, amen and amen, doesn't exactly get us there. So I want you to, I want you to get there, to your reason really to hold on when it's not working. Now look 
at the last word in verse 51. The last word in verse 51 is the signal that yes, in fact, you can hang on when circumstances are bad. That yes, in fact, God's steadfast love and faithfulness will keep His promises. The last word is this, anointed. Doesn't really mean that much to us, does it, in English? But I suppose this is one of those times when it might help you if it wasn't translated. If it wasn't translated, it would be the Hebrew word Messiah. Which gets us then back to the question about God's covenant love and faithfulness. Because in this you know, final word, anointed, or Messiah, the psalmist points this forward to a time when God's covenant love and faithfulness are in full bloom. When that great enemy named death that mocked the steps of God's anointed one is itself mocked. When God's anointed one crushes through His crucifixion and resurrection, death itself. And how do I know that that's what this is pointing to? How do I know that this psalm, with, God, with its insistence on God's covenant love and faithfulness, gets us to the cross of Jesus? Gets us to the resurrection of Jesus? How do I know that? Because Jesus Himself said this. He said, on the really the very last night before the cross, He had a meal with His disciples. Near the end, He held up a cup. And He said, this cup is the new covenant in My blood. He held it up and told all of history God is a covenant-keeping God. His covenant love is good. That's why I'm here. His faithfulness will not fail. That's why I'm going to the cross. And so Psalm 89 is an invitation for us Take a deep breath and to realize that regardless of the circumstances, God does come through. He is faithful. And He does love you. And He most clearly demonstrates that in the person of Jesus. 